Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we are excited to welcome Amy Gravino to the podcast to help break down what it's like to date and find love on the spectrum. Amy is a certified autism specialist and relationship coach at Rutgers University for individuals on the autism spectrum. Amy is autistic herself and understands firsthand what it's like to experience the social challenges posed by dating. And I would imagine, Amy, is that these social challenges are not just felt by people who identify as autistic, is that we all have these identifications of the social challenges. But welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much. So happy to be here today. Well, I'd love to get a little bit of a background and just understand a little bit about yourself and how did you get into public speaking and and where did the desire to really help others navigate such a challenging topic, where did that come to fruition? Thank you. So I actually first started speaking publicly uh, at conferences on Long Island in New York, where I grew up when I was around 14 years old. My mother was on the board of an autism organization there, and they would have these conferences on Long Island, and I would be on the teen panels there. But I didn't start speaking professionally as a professional public speaker um, until around 2006. And around that time, I was filmed for a documentary called Normal People Scare Me which has interviews with over 60 people on the spectrum and is directed by a young man on the spectrum and his mother. And it was the first time anyone had wanted to put my voice out on a platform in that way. And I had never thought before then that my voice could help people. Uh, growing up autistic, you know, you're, I was bullied very frequently through school and I was suicidal from fourth grade until graduation. And I just felt kind of worthless for most of my life and felt that what I had to say had no meaning or purpose. And so being in that film really shifted that, really changed that, and made me start to see it differently. So I began doing the speaking at that time. Uh, I entered graduate school in 2007. I have a master's degree in applied behavior analysis from Caldwell University. And I knew that I wanted to help adults on the spectrum. I knew that there, were, that there was a dearth of services and supports for autistic adults, which there absolutely is. Sometimes it's referred to as the cliff of services that uh, adults on the spectrum fall off of when they turn 21 and age out of the school system. And so I did not want to do early, early intervention. I didn't like kids when I was a kid. Let the people who are good with kids do that. <laughs> not for and in 2013, I was approached by a colleague and dear friend of mine, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, who has worked with adults on the spectrum for many, many years and has been uh, working on sexuality for a very long time before anyone was even thinking of it. And he asked me to co-present with him in Virginia. And so he did the clinical side of the presentation, talked about sexuality and autism from a clinical perspective. And I talked about it from a personal perspective um, and shared my story and talked about my experiences as an autistic woman with dating and sexuality. And I had become a college coach for students on the spectrum prior to that. That's when I started my business in 2010, Ascot Consulting. And, and initially it was to be a college coach. But as it turned out, a lot of people are doing the college thing and not a lot of people are doing the sex thing. So 
it slowly began to take over everything that I was doing. Each year I would give the presentation and I, and I began to give the presentation independent of Peter. I developed, I developed my own presentation that focused on what I had been doing, which was that for my master's thesis in, in ABA, I designed and ran a study that taught two men on the spectrum how to ask someone out on a date. And there had not been something like that in the research literature previously. I definitely was not doing a systematic replication. I kind of designed the study from the ground up, um, a combination of didactic instruction, which is written, written checklist, role playing and video modeling. And so as I began to do my own presentations, I began to I was able to incorporate that and talk about uh, what I was doing and while also sharing my personal experiences, which is what I feel really reaches people um, because you can have plenty of, of quote experts come in and talk about sex and autism from that clinical perspective, but they don't have the lived experience. Amy, I, that that lived experience, your courage, I mean, even at 14, getting up there and speaking, yet then going in and tackling subjects that most people would feel uncomfortable going to talk about anyways, but doing it in a place where you're trying to make it a, a teaching event, a willingness to bring the entire community into that experience and, and really discuss something that, you know, it, we shouldn't hide, um, but sometimes is misportrayed. I think having that real life exp uh, that experience and that real life uh, sharing of, of the history is so important. But that kind of brings me to the idea is that you mentioned a documentary, but there's also all these media things, uh, whether it's love is or love on the spectrum or atypical, where it's showing relationships. How much of that is glorified? How much of that is real? How much of that can you really say, this was my experience as well? Well, that's a great question. But I would see, like you're saying, these portrayals of autism in the media that I felt uh, were not necessarily accurate all the time. And I did have the chance to see Love on the Spectrum. Uh, and I've actually spoken with the producers of the show and been able to give feedback about the show to them. And the, the, the thing, you know, also, also with reality shows is that they are contrived. There are situations being created that they want people to react in and to make good television. But it's not always a reflection of the real reality. Um, and so, and then with scripted shows like Atypical, I, I definitely had some problems with portrayals in Atypical. I felt and still feel that the character of Sam is kind of a walking checklist of symptoms and nobody is a walking checklist of symptoms. So that's, you know, he's not really given a personality outside of being autistic, which I thought was, was a problem. Everyone else, all the other characters have internal lives. The mom, the dad, the sister, they all have these inter rich internal lives, but we never see Sam's internal life. Mm -hmm. And it, that's kind of this stereotype, I think, that arises when we think of autism, where people on the spectrum maybe don't have, we don't, we don't think that they have rich internal lives, or we think that we don't have, you know, this, the same kinds of thoughts that, that others do. And that's not a good thing. You can't have portrayals of people. You certainly, and you certainly can't accurately portray how people on the spectrum engage in relationships if you can't believe that autistic people have internal lives. Yeah. And, and one thing that you mentioned there is that you found an outlet you found a way to start kind of thinking through it and thinking through relationships and thinking through the physical parts of relationships. It, and I think that sometimes we forget uh, as parents, we forget as community members that every single person in our community probably has a desire for emotional, intimate relationships. And 
helping people to understand how to do that appropriately is, is a skill in itself. So when you're talking about um, the autistic community in general, um, it's so broad, it's hard to teach to a very specific person. Like you said, it's not a walking diagnostic checklist. These are individuals who all have individual characteristics. What are some of the common things that you run into that prevent the social relationship from starting or the, the willingness to engage? Well, I think overwhelmingly, a lot of people don't know where to start when it comes to talking about sex and dating. Um, you know, in, in our society, when we have conversations about sexuality and dating, we, we don't speak about them in a straightforward way. We talk in a, in a sort of code. Now, if, if anyone's familiar with, with emojis, like, you, you know, that certain emojis mean something other than what the emoji actually is. So if you're not aware of that code, then you're missing out on a huge part of, of language and of the social communication experience. That people go through. So, for individuals who are autistic, when when they want to when we want to start engaging in relationships, there's a whole other language that we have to wind up learning. Individuals on the spectrum are often, more often than not, um, not required to receive sex education in school. Even um, for most schools, for neurotypical students, it's opt out. So it's assumed that you're going to receive it, and you can choose to have your child opt out. For autistic students, it's opt in. So it's not assumed that you're going to have sex ed, and you have to choose. For your child to get it and many parents may be reluctant to have their child um placed into sex education but uh the only thing you know information does not promote sex it promotes knowledge that's that's a key thing that people think that if they don't tell their child about sex that they won't be thinking about it won't be interested in it. and that's simply not true we'll just find other places to get that information and they and those may not be good places be it peers be it the internet so we need to have that accurate and and honest comprehensive sex education. So that's scary to me, Amy, that, that it would be opt-in for a, a, a any group of individuals, but especially those that, if you look at some of the common challenges, it's reading and understanding social awareness and making those social decisions, which you have to be very understanding and cautious and careful with when you're dealing with sexualized behavior and in dating and understanding those nuances. So what are some of those those challenges that come up? When I when I heard you speaking, it is understanding the language, but I would imagine body language while trying to understand is somebody even interested in what I'm talking about is probably something that could be a challenge. What are some of the things that you've seen while you've been coaching? Oh, definitely body language is a big one. Um, but I think, you know, an important thing to keep in mind is that oftentimes people become afraid because they hear sex and sexuality and they just think of sex. But sexuality is so much more than just a physical act of sex. It's not just about, you know, being in between the sheets with somebody. It's about intimacy and creating a relationship with someone. And those are things that start well before you're ever thinking about going to bed with somebody. So sexuality is, is a huge piece of the human experience. It's about making connections with people, be they friendships, be they romantic relationships. Um, so much, you know, much of what autistic people struggle with, I think neurotypicals struggle with too, but they're able to hide it better. They're able to look more like they know what they're doing, but I know you people don't know what you're doing. You're just faking it. There's um, a better masks, I guess. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But the, the fact is, you know, when we created accommodations like curb cuts, for example, those were for wheelchair users, but they wound up benefiting many more people than just 
wheelchair users. They wound up benefiting people with strollers, people with mobility challenges. Similarly, if we created sexual education curricula where we talk about that social component of sexuality, that would benefit everybody. That would benefit neurotypicals as well as people on the spectrum because we don't talk about that piece, because we don't talk about how do you know if someone's interested in you? How do you, you know what I mean? You ask a neurotypical that and their answer is going to be kind of like a very fumbling, well, you know, they might look at you like this or they might, you know, squint or there's like a mating dance, you know, it's like <laughs> nobody, everybody gives off signals differently is the thing. Everybody shows their interest in different ways. Um, and, and, you know, so much of that factors into how we're socialized as both women and men in our society and, and what, we're, what we're trained to feel is appropriate or not appropriate for showing interest and so on. And it's so it's very, very complex. Um, overwhelmingly, you know, I, I do see a lot of folks on the spectrum ending up in the criminal justice system um, because of not, you know, being taught some of these very important things and, and you know, having the distinctions made about things like stalking, for example. You know, stalking is not acceptable no matter who is engaging in it. And if you break the law, the law doesn't care if you're on the spectrum, you'll, you'll go to jail. And so we end up having a lot of people on the spectrum in the criminal justice system on the sex offender registry who shouldn't be there, who are not, you know, criminals. They're, they're not, these are not intentional crimes, but because there's the, no, no social foundation there, it, it, it creates vulnerability. It creates a vulnerability for people on the spectrum to become offenders, even though overwhelmingly, people on the spectrum are much more likely to be the victims of sexual crimes and abuse than perpetrators. Yeah, but what you say makes so much sense because in, even what you were talking about earlier in saying that, okay, so let's rewind and go through this. We don't offer education. We leave it up to an individual to go and find their own educative sources, which oftentimes could be uh, television shows. It could be the internet. It could be just not very good sources. And then they try and put it into real life is that mm -hmm. you definitely are going to run into challenges. So how do you go about teaching these? What are some of the methods that you've used to really coach through that process to keep people in safe places so they can have healthy relationships? You know, the first thing is, is I, I always try to talk to people and see what is their expectation? What, you know, so many times you hear someone on the spectrum say, I want a girlfriend. Well, what does that mean to you? What, what, what do you want a girlfriend for? Like you can't go down to the girlfriend store and pick one up. Like you, you have to want to be with someone because of who they are, not just, not just because you want a girlfriend. Um, I mean, would you want someone to be with you just because they want a boyfriend, not because they're actually interested in you? So kind of figuring that out and then figuring and, and asking the person, what do you want to bring to a relationship? Not just what do you want from a relationship? What do you want? How do you want to be someone's boyfriend? What does that look like to you? And kind of really talking frankly about this stuff that maybe a lot of folks haven't really thought of or haven't had the opportunity to think of or been given the language to talk about, right? Because again, that's another reason why perhaps some of these conversations don't happen is that if an autistic individual isn't given the vocabulary to to name what is going on, to talk about whether it's body parts, whether it's, you know, se sexual activity, whatever it may be, then that it becomes that much more difficult, you know? Um, so yeah, just trying to get down to what what is it that person really wants and how can we help them achieve that? Yeah, I think that what you're describing is probably healthy for all kids. Um, it probably has a little bit more of a nuance when you when you have any sort of difference in the way that you're perceiving or experiencing the world is that, of course, the teaching has to be tailored to that by the family or by the parent. But it, is it oftentimes that you're finding that 
when you go away from being straightforward or direct and you start getting to the more of the nuanced language that mm -hmm. that's where you're losing people or i think that you said in your research that you had um some form of uh a, a, a teaching adult autistic men on how to approach people for dating. And I mean, is that done through like a checklist and through what we would look at as task analysis? Or I mean, is it a matter of just teaching them how to be able to recognize body awareness? And how'd you do that? I, I, I used a treatment package. I used a combination of a checklist and role playing and video modeling. And so they would practice with uh, an actor, with somebody who I had helping me with the study and they would practice the asking out and I would record them. And so then they would watch the target video to kind of look at how it was supposed to look like. And then they would watch their video and we'd compare them. We'd talk about the differences. And you know, the, the biggest uh, factor, the biggest challenge, I think, in teaching these skills, it's certainly that I face in the study, other than having a hard time getting participants in the first place, because not a lot of people like to have their dating skills critiqued, big shock, um, <laughs> is that within a controlled study, you can have the person do everything quote right and someone can still say, no, I'm not gonna go out with you because people have free will. Mm -hmm. or, I mean, that's in the real world. In the study, it was set up so that if they did everything, the person says, yes, I'll go out with you. But in the real world, someone can still say no. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I think inherently, a lot of people are hesitant to teach a skill that could, could get someone hurt. That is not just about helping someone do something, but that, that there's risk involved with. But that's what dating is. That's what relationships are. There's always risk involved when you put your heart out there and that's, and we as autistic people should have just as much right to possibly have our hearts broken as neurotypicals. And sometimes the only way you learn how to deal with a broken heart is to have a broken heart. And that was certainly true for me. And, mm -hmm. and would I have wanted to spare myself that pain? Of course. I mean, it was terrible. It was, it was not a walk in the park, but I, I also would have never known that I could heal from it if it, if it hadn't happened. And yeah. so that's, that's, what we have to all, we all know often end up weighing is the risk versus the benefit. Now, so I've seen in a lot of teaching a movement towards virtual reality, and whether it's groups like Florio Tech or something like that that have done it for uh, engagement with uh, police or EMTs, or have done it for social conversation skills. It, have you seen anything like that for for teaching people the same approach behaviors that you're describing? but doing it in a VR context. So they're having to look at all that. Um, oh, I, I don't know about VR specifically, but there are guides online. There are things that exist now, like the Organization for Autism Research has created a sex ed guide for self-advocates, which is designed for folks on a spectrum age 15 and up, which addresses all of these areas. It's, it's you know, there are videos at the start of each section, which are actually, uh, I'm in them along with Dr. Peter Gerhardt. We, give, we provide the introductions to those but, but each section, and it can also be read along by parents as well, um, it covers all these different areas, um, you know, be it sexual orientation, safety, abuse, gender identity, dating, all of those things are, are, are covered there. So I think there are starting to be more options on, online in, in, in that regard, but I, I don't know of anything with virtual reality. I, I can't even imagine how that would, how that would work exactly. Um, yeah. for like this, but. I'm, I'm always intrigued with anything that comes out technology-wise that can create those real-life situations and help somebody to process of, you know, how do I approach somebody that I see at, at a restaurant and want to say hello? And I mean, that sort of stuff where it's just kind of cool to see that piece of it of all the stuff that you're teaching is, is there any immersion? And maybe there's not yet, but 
maybe that's your next project. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it'll just be very challenging to 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 put something like dating and sexuality in a virtual reality environment because there are so many factors that come into play in the real environment. Mm-hmm. So you could you could create that that manufactured environment where you know somebody's in a coffee shop and how do you approach them? But in the real world setting, there's there's other things that could come into play that will influence. Yeah. You know, well, I, I practice this and it looks like the same situation, but it's actually not. There's other factors. So I think I think that I mean, that certainly could be a, a unique application. But I think there's a lot you'd have to control for and a lot that you have to really put into consideration for that. Yeah. Even that description that you just gave, I mean, it puts into context the complexities to that that component of socialization that mm-hmm. deals with dating and relationships. Do you think that that's potentially why I mean, most parents fear this subject with their children, even though I would say is that most children, adults, whether you're uh, identify as autistic or neurotypical, is that, you know, it's one of those things that relationships are important. Uh, Oftentimes that dating relationship is a key goal for most people. And do you find that parents choose not to tackle this subject because of the complexities and that they just don't want to see their child that way? Yeah, it does. I think that's definitely a big part of it. Um, I think most parents of neurotypical kids don't want to see their children as sexual beings, but they do acknowledge and accept eventually that their kids grow up. But it's not always the case with with autistic children. Uh, we tend to infantilize adults on the spectrum. We tend you hear things like, you know, he's 20 years old with a mentality of a five year old. Well, he's 20 years old with a mentality of a 20 year old with his particular challenges, desires, needs, strengths, and so on. And and but then we just you know we tend to um, put this idea of innocence onto uh, people on the spectrum that they are by nature innocent and and would and we don't want to somehow corrupt that by introducing information about sexuality. Um, and I can tell you, I was extremely shy as a teenager, but in my head it was like Coachella. It was so loud. There was so much going on that I wanted to know that I was curious about and. All, even if I wasn't saying, you know, again, we also tend to make this assertion that if someone on the spectrum isn't talking about something that's affecting them, it's not affecting them. We do not assume that for neurotypical individuals. If a neurotypical teenager is reduced to monosyllabic grunts because they don't want to talk about something that's going on with them, we just think, all right, he doesn't want to talk about it. He's fine. But if an autistic teenager doesn't want to talk about something, we just think it's not affecting them. And I, I think that's very harmful. And that also you know, speaks to how we misunderstand the impact of puberty on individuals on the spectrum. We misunderstand the impact of sexuality overall on individuals on the spectrum. So we have to change a lot of that. Yeah. And I can see a lot of families avoiding that because oftentimes we avoid what's hard, what's challenging or what we don't really want to face. And Mm -hmm. often, and those are the things that are unknown. And for a family, it's how do I, A, go down this route with any child, but now how do I do this with my child that might have a different view on um, the social world around them or might perceive different things slightly different than the way that their parent might think? And how do I attack that? So what is your advice for that family on how to get those resources, including, I, I mean, I, I think that one of the greatest resources they could understand of is, is what you do at ASCOT Consulting, but what are some of the other things that families could be doing to be able to start broaching the subject? Um, well, I, 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 I mentioned this a lot in the presentations that I give, and I, you know, the first thing is to be a safe space for your child. And that seems a little bit vague, but what, what that kind of means is that 
you know, if your child doesn't want to talk, if your 15 year old doesn't want to talk to you about sex, that means they're a normal 15 year old because no 15 year old wants to talk to their parents about sex. But if you let them know that you're there and you say, okay, you don't want to talk about this, that's fine. But if you want a second opinion, I'm here. You know, and, and, and they know that you're a safe person to talk to about these things, that you will not be judgmental. You won't be, you know, shame, shaming them in any way. That, that can go a very long way to kind of fostering that, that relationship so that those conversations can happen. Um, and sometimes also it's something that's really small that can lead to a bigger conversation too. So we tend to, you know, historically think of sex as the talk, you know, the birds and the bees talk. Um, and But as far as I'm concerned, that can be kept in the movies where it belongs because sex and sexuality is not just one conversation. It's many different conversations. It's, you know, it, it's not just one time that you talk about this and never again, it's ongoing. So you don't have to break out all the charts and slides and diagrams all at once when you're going to talk to your, your child. You know, it can just be something like, oh, did you see those two characters kissed in that show the other night? What did you think of that? And that's something really little that can lead to a much larger conversation. Um, and I think also very importantly, you know, to parent again, not to take it personally. You know, again, if your child is not ready to, to speak about those things with you yet, but but try to meet them at that intersection of what they need to know versus where they are developmentally, what they what they want to what they're ready to know, what they want to know. Um, and that's that's the tricky part, right? It is because a lot of times for, for folks on the spectrum where we are chronologically age wise may not match up where we are developmentally. So again, it's just meeting at the intersection of what the person has expressed interest in knowing versus what they need to know for their for their age. And also keeping the five year rule in mind, which is that what does your child need to know five years from now? Um, because the things that are cute when somebody's five are not so cute when they're 15 and we'll get them thrown in jail when they're 25. So always be thinking ahead as well. And that's all absolutely wonderful advice. And I mean, to be honest, I empathize with parents in the aspect that even as clinicians, clinicians haven't been tackling this subject for years. It's something that there's been a, a dearth of information that's been out there for even us to understand. Quite frankly, the dialogue with autistics themselves, trying to learn from autistics, hasn't occurred until I think just even recently where it's been a more open conversation, which is why I, I really appreciate what you've done since age 14. But it's putting yourself out there to educate others because mm -hmm. as much as we want to do good work, you can't do it if you don't understand everybody that's involved with the work that's being done. So what's what's the words that you'd, or what's the advice or where would you be pushing the field to say, hey, mm -hmm. step up, do the right thing, get these people involved. Like, how would you challenge us? Yeah. That's definitely something I've been focusing on recently with, with some of the presentations I've been doing. Um, and, you know, I had some interesting pushback from a webinar I did recently where one of the feedback comments talked about that I should be coached in how I talk about my own experiences to for the sake of my dignity and so that I will get respect from audiences. And it was this deeply condescending comment. And I, you know, and I, I, I realize that it's an attitude that I may come up against, um, but I, <laughs> no, you know, I, nobody is the defender of someone else's dignity. It's my choice to talk about the experiences that I've been through because it's the very fact that I talk about them that reaches people. And I think hopefully inspires people to act and to do something about this area. Um, I, I have talked about, uh, you know, why ABA is not addressing sexuality adequately. And I, and I think part of it is that 
fear of not knowing how to do something and so therefore just avoiding it entirely. Um, it's part of the reason why I just like the word expert because it's a static term and it confers with it an authority that can't be challenged. That's why I call myself a specialist in autism and sexuality. And a lot of people feel like, well, if I don't know exactly all everything there is to know about this and I don't know all the right things to do here, then I'm not, I don't even want to touch it. And that's that's not going to work with this. You can't just say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to bother with it because I don't know what to do. To me, the most powerful phrase you can say is I don't know. And it, it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of lack of knowledge. It's a sign of the fact that you you know what your limitation is. You know that you don't have this particular answer, but but you're looking for it. You want to find it. If it, I've had clients and I've had situations where I'm asked something and I would say, I don't know. Let's find out the answer to that together. So that that's the thing. You know, I think too many BCBAs end up focusing on being the lords of their own little fiefdoms instead of working collaboratively. And and that's and in this area in particular, we cannot afford to be precious and withhold from one another. We have to be collaborative uh, with this because there's so much that we're still learning. The field is growing all the time and changing. Our knowledge of ABA is changing. Our knowledge of sexuality and autism is changing. So we have to learn from each other constantly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that by having these conversations and uh, being willing to understand that, you know, there's there's pieces of information I don't know, and my job is to go out and learn and educate. And so I, I love that aspect of it. Now, I do want to end with an idea and a, I guess, just giving some guidance. Um, a lot of times, people in general just give up on love because they can't figure out how to navigate it. What is your advice for them on how to continue to navigate it, even though there might be failure? I know how easy it is to want to give up. I know that when you grow up in a world that doesn't value you and that makes you feel that you're not worth anything, that you want to hold on to the people who make you feel like you are something. And as autistic people, we're often made to feel that we can't have standards, that anyone who shows us the littlest bit of affection, we have to reciprocate because maybe nobody will ever wanna be with us again. Maybe nobody will ever wanna love us again. I had to go through that and learn to move past that and realize that I do have value. It's not something that someone could give to me. It's not something that someone could tell me. I am saying this to you now, but it's something you'll have to figure out on your own for yourself, that, that you're allowed to have standards. You're allowed to say, I have love to give, and it's only for someone who deserves it, someone who's worthy of that. Um, I I know what it feels like to be thrown away and to feel that somebody only wants you for what you can do for them and, and doesn't really care about you as a person, even though you feel like they do in that moment. You're almost sure of it. And the hardest thing, I think, isn't, to not give up on love. The hardest thing is to not give up on yourself. So above all else, do not give up on yourself. And I think that that's so important for everybody to hear, Amy, is that in in no matter what relationship you're in, the first person that you have to have a healthy relationship with is yourself in order to be able to both give and receive love appropriately. And I think that that is so important, the message that you're delivering. And I, I do hope that that's part of your coaching philosophy is, is helping people to realize that, you know, Absolutely. every single person has value. Absolutely. 
But um, I, everything that you've said today has really educated me. Um, and to be honest, it's, it's something that I think that I'll need to continuously learn, develop, and reaffirm over the years is how people are experiencing these events and understanding that my experience is not everybody's experience and being open to hear and listen. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing and I hope that you're out there more and more frequently. Where do you think that we'll be able to see or hear you next? Absolutely. So, well, for the past year, obviously, most of my work has been online. Um, but I always update my website, uh, www.amygravino.com, with information about my speaking engagements. Um, I'm on social media, also on Twitter, at Amy Gravino, on Instagram, at amy.gravino, and Facebook, uh, Amy Gravino fan page. So I try to keep all that up to date with, with what I'm doing. And I, I am starting to have some more in-person speaking engagements coming up. So hopefully as things start to get back to something resembling normal, there will be more of that happening. And I'm working on a book as well called The Naughty Audie, which is a memoir of my experiences with dating as a woman on the spectrum. And there's been some good progress on that end. So I'm hopeful that it'll be out before we know it. Well, I hope that um, all the individuals listening, all the parents and all the clinicians have the chance to be able to, to access your knowledge base and learn from some of your experiences. And once again, thank you for joining. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.